Hello and welcome to Security Dilemma. I'm Patrick C. Fox. Security Dilemma is a podcast by the John Quincy Adams Society, where John Allen Gay joins me in conversations with experts about critical national security issues. This week, we have another episode we recorded back in May, this time with Jason Beardsley. Jason has decades of experience in Joint Special Operations Command, and in the Trump administration, he advised both the Department of Veteran Affairs and the Department of Defense. Jason is now the Director for Veteran Initiatives at Stand Together and a frequent MSNBC contributor. Jason is an incredibly friendly guy with a vast knowledge in an often misunderstood element of national security. In our conversation, he talked about the sort of can-do attitude deeply integrated into JSOC command structures and his experience with those tactics translating into results. Join us as we explore the world of joint operations and other elements of U.S. foreign policy with Jason Beardsley. much for joining us today, Jason. Uh, welcome to Security Dilemma. What are some issues you're working on these days? Oh, I'm actually happy to be working with uh, Stand Together Community as the Director of Veterans Affairs. And along with that, I, I advise the Concerned Veterans for America. That's a coalition of veterans and families and patriots who, who really love this country, want to have a voice in the dialogue, and um, really apply some of the experience we learned in service and years of you know going to war and combat or supporting that type of environment, and then bringing it back to, I think, the Washington, D.C., uh, collective dialogue. That's advocacy for things like veterans' health or benefits, or how do we keep the country strong and, and ensure that our foreign policy is right-sized for the uh, for the nation? Absolutely. And leading up to that, you had a really interesting career. Can you take us through the arc of it? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Interesting is a, a fair word. I started in the Navy. I uh, wanted to be in uh, special warfare there as a SEAL. Um, through some injuries, was out in the fleet as a communicator for the first Persian Gulf War. So uh, we were successful in, in winning that in very short order, as you know, and then uh, spent the rest of the 90s sort of in uh, waffling between sort of National Guard and active duty, looking at uh, a career ahead in special forces at the same time, you know, picking up life skills and and being married and spending time with, uh, you know, growing a family. Right around 9-11, right before Relay, I was in uh, the penultimate sort of training course for the Special Forces. We were in SEER school when the towers were knocked down. It was a pretty tremendous uh, time for us to kind of switch from a peacetime mentality all of a sudden to war footing. And uh, that took us to post 9-11, where I spent a lot of time uh, deploying both as a civilian contractor, as I said, I was in the National Guard with the Special Forces, but then also as a Green Beret with my team into, into places uh, until I went to active duty, which was about 2005. So spending a lot of time on the road in the Middle East, uh, 2003, 2004, and then 2005 going into some other special missions type work, uh, which brought me back on the road uh, into other places, including Northeast Africa, West Africa, some other interesting uh, places. So I had a, a great chance to see the Navy side, the Army side, special operations, did a lot of work out of embassies and counterterrorism, and then went down to the intelligence course uh, for the CIA, which was a great career sort of capstone, if you will, but it allowed us to apply some different leverage inside the special operations uh, spectrum when it came to, you know, counterterrorism and other things. So very broad and uh, gave me a lot of opportunity to rub up against policy and the national security establishment, as well as really doing the groundwork of the soldiering. So uh, enjoyed a full spectrum, that's for sure. Jason, uh, we were talking the other day about some of the culture in the soft community, kind of a, a can-do attitude that develops through a lot of the training and the processes and how that meshes well and poorly at times with policy. Can you take us through that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I love my peers. And when you go through these type of challenging courses, what gets trained into your heart and into your mindset is a, a sort of an optimism. It's maybe a pessimistic optimism. You know, there's nothing we can't do or accomplish as long as you give us the time and the resources to do it. And usually we know we're going to be short on both time and resources. So then you're built into this personality 
that uh, steps out off the ledge into the unknown uh, in front of danger or in into chaos with willingness, but also an expectation that when I get on the ground with the folks I've trained with and the resources I've been given by my commander, we will handle the situation. And so you end up with a sort of a mindset of no matter what is come our way or what task we're given, we're going to accomplish that. And and when you take that to the broader perspective, the foreign policy uh, as it relates to the nation and really the use of our instruments of state, a lot of us just kind of naturally lean in the direction of if there's a problem, we're not just willing to fix it, but we'd love to get on the road to be the, be the guys jumping into the problem set. So from a standpoint of willingness and heart, you're always going to find the soft community, special operations forces ready to go wherever. So if you said the problem was in country X and the argument for the national security establishment was, maybe we shouldn't be there, or let's look at the, uh, you know, force protection, or let's look at the United States as a uh, restraint or a realistic sort of pragmatism as we go forward. Um, That's the last thing on our mind when we're in that active mode. Hey, you've got a problem. We've been trained. Uh, We're ready to jump in. And so send us, you know, the idea is uh, wherever you want to send us. And so that, that has to be curbed or balanced uh, with folks like yourself and, and others in this uh, environment that can really smartly apply long range, you know, concepts that really redound to the benefit of uh, the citizen of, of the American Republic. So that that's that's part of what we were talking about. Well, how does that affect how you and maybe how others in your community have seen some of the post 9-11 wars? You know, because you could look at it from the can-do perspective and say, hey, if there had been, for instance, another three to five years in Afghanistan, you know, which I remember is what people were talking about when the withdrawal was being considered uh, in the Trump administration, uh, that if we had had just that extra bit of time, they would have been able to stand on their own. Uh, but you see a lot of other folks saying, yeah, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't in the cards, even, even that it wasn't a timeline problem. What are your thoughts there? Right. Um, a lot of us in the community that I come from, uh, so that would be your Green Berets, your SEALs, uh, Rangers, Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, the guys that are hitting the targets, you know, in the period of darkness, you know, from like sunup to sundown or really sundown to sunup rather. We saw the fight from a firsthand perspective, and we felt very confident, particularly in the beginning of Afghanistan, that uh, the work that was necessary for us to do, which was quell sort of at that time, you know, sort of Taliban resistance, and to sort of maintain a a reasonable sense of um, not quite peace, but let's call it a fragile state of security, uh, we accomplished that. And so we were pretty confident that, hey, you know, we can take on that kind of a challenge all day long. But I think a lot of us recognized immediately that uh, when we replaced the theory of sort of executing violence of action against enemy targets quickly and effectively, we replaced that with now let's uh, build government systems and transition folks uh, into a civilian, you know, cooperative republic or a participatory government, frankly, it's as if we lost our footing. And I think folks in my community recognized it, except that we were still tasked with rendering violence effectively and efficiently against the elements uh, at, at foot. So in Iraq, that meant, you know, the elements that were resistant or, you know, became terror cells or became networks of foreign fighters in, inside Iraq and so on and so forth. And of course, we're happy to do that work all day long. But the special operations mindset is much more tactical. So that tactical mindset doesn't always look to the ramifications of why we're here long term. And so you end up with gentlemen or ladies that are on deployment over and over again with their head down inside the tactical environment, ready to do more work. And it, it takes a little time for you to reflect and realize those the, these tactics are not nested into a, a great strategy, one grand strategy, so that we hear from the president, we hear from national security uh, cabinet or, or members of the senior levels of the Pentagon, we hear ambiguity. We hear a lack of clarity. We're not sure what the victory looks like. We know how to kill the enemy. I mean, that's clear. We I think we demonstrated that over and over again. What we what we never 
uh, I think, realized, at least in the middle of this, or many didn't realize, is that uh, our part of this, which could have been successful, was not connected to uh, some idea that led to an objective at the end that we could say, there, we, there we, we've done it. You know, there was no Berlin. There was no uh, <laughs> a grand parade in New York, a ticker tape celebrating the end of something. So I think that hurt us a lot. I think it's, frankly, one of the reasons why uh, military veterans who have done this walk uh, bear the burdens now of kind of um, sort of the the moral injury as well as sort of some of the things that have isolated us in our post-war experiences and caused a lot of problems, alcoholism, suicide, things like that. Yeah. Talk a little bit about some of those challenges that have fa- been facing the veteran community. And for those of us who haven't heard the term moral injury, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, moral, moral injury is part of um, what happens in war when uh, you're seeing things that are extremely violent and uh, you're processing those in ways that you don't always have time to really articulate the causes. And, you know, there's not always reason. I mean, that's the fascinating thing is war is chaos. So tentatively in our life, we tend to have reasoning behind something, but things can happen. A car accident in the middle of, you know, a life or somebody gets snatched away. But when you're on the battlefield, that's happening with a lot of frequency. And so uh, you begin to see this and sometimes internalize it in ways that uh, you become desensitized, a little bit callous. Uh, you're asked to be in strange positions, whether it was Afghanistan or Iraq. We saw a lot of combatants on the battlefield that were not in uniform. Some were underage. I mean, there'd be kids, you know, young young teenagers or run up on um, females that had IED devices and materials. And so you, you're you're being placed in situations quite frequently where the judgment of the operational mindset has to act quickly and sometimes gets it wrong. And that can lead to that moral injury, the idea that you come home with the scars of having seen or been a party to uh, things that at the time you didn't have enough time to, to make a qualified judgment or uh, you weren't quite aware of what the ramifications were going to be. So when you come home and then you have time to think about it, years to process it, you know, living with your life, struggling with things that are natural to all of us, but you haven't really uh, reconciled all those moral injuries from the battlefield. They compound in layer. And those type of things help to isolate you from others. Nobody understands me. You know, I can't talk to my peers or my colleagues. So we end up looking for people like us that understand us, but you left the military. So, you know, they're states away or you don't have the same unit that you're with. And next thing you know, a lot of us try to take those injuries on ourselves and and face them as individuals. And so that, that, that becomes almost a cycle or portion to the cycle of uh, sort of depression and stuff. So, so moral injury is, is one of the reasons when we do war, we ought to do it very uh, deliberately with a clear objective and outcome and make sure that we're limiting the exposure of uh, people that are in those positions. I mean, 20 years of deploying you know, back to back to back to back. That's just not too healthy for anyone. Yeah. How much time did you say spend at home between, you know, 2001 and when you got out? It was rapid. It was fast. I I had uh, the benefit to be in a part of the JSOC community that I learned a lot of hard lessons from um, some of the larger military communities. I had friends that were deployed 16 months at a time or 12 months at a time, but in the joint special operations community, they were uh, smart enough to to be able to take people in three and four month cycles, bring them back, and then send them out again because uh, now you're dealing with frequency, but you're having reset time. So in between these deployments of four months or so, sometimes they get out to six or longer, but oftentimes you'll get a chance to be at home, decompress, and it's not a full decompression during the operational years of the war. You might be doing training when you get home. You might be doing some qualification, but I had a phenomenal uh set of leadership. At one point, uh, General Fenton, who is now the uh, SOCOM uh, general, was uh, was one of my commanders. And I, I remember coming back from deployment and he put me on a, a military a family retreat. You know, we went to a beautiful place, spent some time decompressing. I didn't want to go, <laughs> but uh, he was smart enough to, to kind of take the individual out of 
what we just did and then uh, really decompress well so you can kind of on-ramp back into uh, normal lifehood, at least for a little bit. So so I would spend a lot of times back and forth, which is a different kind of shock to the system. You know, one, one day you're, you're driving down the road under the underpass in Iraq looking for IEDs, and the next day you're, you're driving under the underpass in Columbus, Ohio looking for IEDs. So, you know, the, the, the thing uh, carries with you a little bit there. What would you say is a is a better role for JSOC to play in national security today? What would be a better way to think and approach about using JSOC? Uh, it, it's such a, a great question that uh, I think first you know maybe deserves a little bit of uh, table setting and and really understanding where we've come from as a nation. You know, we started out with a sort of a much different mindset, very you know small minded and independent. Uh, there wasn't the idea of a standing army. And you know, in the last hundred years, we've blown past that. The scale of industrialism and scale of society has really uh, increased to the extent that we've got the largest standing army in the world deployed all over the world, You know, hundreds of countries. So we're a constant presence. The American people have at, at, in some way, shape or form accepted that. You know, They may not be directly you know, intimately involved with those detailed arguments, but at this stage, because we're so prolific, we almost have to start from that point and go, well, what is then the role of a small, uh, unconventional guerrilla warfare-like action arm for the military? Because number one, <clears throat> it's supposed to be nested under a national strategy. And the national strategy itself is gapping. We have NDSSs written, the National Defense Security uh, Strategy. We have NDAs. We have we have these documents that lightly suggest what a grand strategy is. But if you ask soldiers, if you ask people that are serving in the military, what is the actual strategy for the United States in, say, the Middle East? Uh, I would challenge that most people wouldn't have an answer for that. I'm not. I'm not quite sure if you guys would or not. But because there's no articulated pure strategy, it's it, it then becomes the onus of commanders to uh, leverage the assets they have, and special operations being a, a great asset uh, of limited sort of approach to leverage those assets in support of the foreign policy dictates of the executive branch. And so if the executive branch just become comfortable deploying at an arm's distance type forces, uh, if they're comfortable with that, uh, then the use of JSOC has got to be a little bit more broad. Uh, let's go back to 1805, you know, Thomas Jefferson, um, in order to quell uh, the Barbary pirates and, and sort of the impression of sailors at sea and really protect trade on the oceans, not just for America, but for the Western countries, you know, the European countries. Uh, Jefferson didn't didn't quite uh, support, but he gave a wink and a nod to the small band of operators, you know, under, uh, you know, General Eaton and uh, Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon, a Marine, to go down into the Barbary Coast and, and raid the Pasha there, who was in charge of sort of that policy, they, that was a small forces kind of JSOC-like operation that uh, was actually, you know, redounded to the benefit not just of the West, America, Britain, but to the whole world. So I think when we look at the history of our, our country, whether it's, you know, Ethan Allen, you know, and, and taking the guns from Fort Ticonderoga and, and a special op to get him down to George Washington, the conventional army commander in Boston, or we look at something like, you know, the Barbary Coast Pirates and the suppression of those, I, I think there's always a role as long as our commanders are conscious of the, you know, really the desires of the executive branch and the way to curb those or to keep those healthy, if you will, is a lot of transparency that I think we're missing now. The executive branch ought to be uh, held accountable when they make these decisions. And I think oftentimes we, we sort of go with it. Uh, case in point, our authorization use of military forces, the AUMFs that are on the paper, they've been there for 20 years, uh, and we often stretch those a little bit. Uh, it's not inappropriate for Congress to step in and start looking at those with a little more, let's call it, <clears throat> temporal veracity. You know, uh, now that it's 20 years late, maybe we, we, we take those off the books and write new ones that are uh, more effective for the time right now. And I think that's the best way we keep Americans involved in that. So the, the, the question you asked was how to use JSOC. I think the answer has to be in support of national goals, in support of the commander's decisions as it relates to tools of state. When diplomacy fails, the other tools of states that are available for 
the president come down to things like use of military force. When using military force, the least uh, break glass option, although sometimes it can be the biggest, but the, one of the small break glass options is JSOC. We need we Omar al-Baghdadi or uh, HVIs that we have to target that are not, they don't require a large footprint. And sometimes you get away with more with a non-conventional footprint than you would with conventional. So it's a, it's, it's a very tough, that's a, such a great question, but it's a very difficult one. So you, you mentioned a bit the political civil military relationship, and you've worked on the civil side of this relationship too during the uh, during the Trump administration. What was it like, kind of switching teams there, and do, do you, how do you feel like you did in that role? Oh yeah, that's phenomenally uh, said. The the civil military relations number one, such a big area of study, right? And there's a huge gap. And for those listening, sometimes people don't realize how few members of the larger grand community are connected to the military. And so it's not always well understood how, how uh, that military mindset is, but switching from that side back over to the civilian side, uh, number one, I'm, I'm proud to do it. I think the onus is on us to remember that we first served the Constitution and the Republic. And all things that come from that are the liberties that we experience here at home, uh, that we we like to believe that we're defending abroad. So having a good understanding of the ground uh, sort of principles of who we are as Americans, uh, for me, that, that made civil service extremely rewarding. It's very difficult. Uh, I worked in two administrations, two bureaucracies of the administration, the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Defense, both very large and both have their own cultures. And the cultures are set by, you know, years of just bureaucracy. So you're dealing with that. And um, the experience helped me really see that side of civilian sort of oversight of the military one at DOD and where that's necessary. And again, that's necessary because what we talked about before, the proper use of the armed forces is really tied hand in hand with civilian oversight, congressional, senatorial, you know, the the idea that the people are 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 tied to each election cycle, be it the congressman or the senator, and of course the president, so that they have a say in how our forces are deployed. So for me, I found that very rewarding and that insight from uh just really the background of America to the actual, you know, service for the Constitution, I think was um it was tremendous. How do you think the uh, the Biden administration is doing in its handling of uh, special operations issues? <laughs> sometimes special operations are the easy go-to button, and sometimes they shouldn't be. So there are effective uses uh, of deploying, say, SEAL Team 6 or Delta Force that don't always get talked about. And then there are those who those uses that sometimes become showcases or, you know, sort of uh, show ponies, if you will, uh, for political reasons. And any time the deployment of troops, especially in harm's way, is done for a political purpose that is uh, other than the sort of defense of the United States or the advance of our uh, national causes and known, uh, it's questionable. So how the Biden administration, how would I rate them? Uh, You'd have to go on what's published first. Uh, got to start there. So what do we know about what's published uh, from the Biden administration is very little to do with uh, special operations here and there. You know, they're in support of the Afghanistan withdrawal. That was a disaster. But I would suggest that it wasn't the use of special operations there or lack thereof, whichever you say, that caused the disaster. That was a more grand strategy. I think next we see them really kind of pop up in uh, the current um, struggle in Ukraine with Russia and the reports of uh, special operations being used as trainers. And I could tell you from firsthand uh, experience and also folks I know that the training for the Ukrainians between our forces and theirs has been going on for quite some time. It's an ongoing thing. And I would suggest it's one of the reasons why they had some uh, success, the Ukrainian army, as they, they face down the Russians now. So in addition to that, uh, there are probably a number of things taking advantage of certain special operations capacities that have not been published that if I think were brought to light or seen in the American public uh, would at least be 
the right place for dialogue, dialogue between uh, the Congress and the president. Not to say right or wrong, but to say, is this the, the proper use of them? I'll give you one example. And this is, this is more, uh, I'm going to use a historical context here to paint what I, what I mean. When we did Afghanistan in the 80s, uh, supporting the Mujahideen, uh, we were running covert weapons throughout the uh, region to support their fight against the Soviets at the time, the Soviet Union. And it led to a number of successes on the battlefield that were pretty uh, temporal, shall we say, and then uh, ended up after that, after the Russians left, uh, spending a lot of time having to go back and unwind that or un- unpack that. So Stinger missiles, for example, that got proliferated in the area during that campaign, we ended up having to buy them back. So this is the CIA and special operations doing a lot of work over the years to re to put, to put back in the, you know, the, the barn, the horses that ran out. Right. So in today's environment, we're probably looking at a lot of the similar um, repeat echoes from those times where uh, we may be aggressive in our support of Ukraine and doing things on the periphery that we'll end up having to kind of unwind over the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, so the grade is, I, I guess it's got to be held in check. We don't have uh, a number of great examples. We have a few small raids, you know, Delta Force, SEAL Team 6. Those have been very successful. So on the surface, we'd have to give the success of special operations a pretty good grade. Uh what what we what we ought to do uh, smartly as a as a great uh, country, a great nation, is to be able to debate the strategic reasons why. So let let alone the tactics, set those to the side. Hey, these guys performed outstanding, uh, interrupting certain terrorist uh, activities in Syria and other places, uh, smacking down the Russians. You know when it was when it was time. I mean, we've had some grand successes. Those have been very tactical. The question, I think, is left to the American body, the politic body, to say, you know, which of those are nested into the strategic policy realm? And then how do we then uh, reconcile that? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about some of the strategic competition and how it plays with, uh, with, with special operations. There's a lot of conversation about Wagner Group and a number of other you know, competing special operations units from competing powers. How should America be interpreting Wagner Group's operations in Africa or even some of the Chinese operations in Central Asia and Syria? Um, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm a, I'm kind of a frank realist in, in that, uh, we've always seen, uh, these exigent forces doing, uh, crisis type work on behalf of states as a proxy arm, you know, whether it's, you know, the Wagner group or, or the French foreign legion, or, you know, going back again to our own, uh, nation's histories with, say, you know, the again, the Barbary Coast or uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, charging up San Juan Hill and, and things like this. So um, we have a tendency, I think, in the United States to sometimes um, see things from our optic rather than kind of the historical trends, which is those type of groups, Wagner Group or, or other uh, competitive sort of non-linear, non-traditional military forces are always going to be at play. And uh, they will always uh, present a challenge because they're not held to the same accountability and they have a lot more uh, latitude. They, they may not be resourced the same way. And then really recognize behind that are the state powers. You know, what is what is power politics look like? You know, and it usually looks like proxying these type of forces. Let's let's go back to the Nord Stream pipeline. What happened there? I mean, uh, someone would have to have a sit down, frank discussion to, to determine which uh, state powers may have been invested in potentially using proxies to to take a strategic asset like a pipeline that belonged to a NATO ally along with Russia and to take it offline. And I think those kind of questions would then cause the conversation to really, again, set the table. You mentioned uh, great power, uh, sort of strategic competition like with China and and uh, how we face that. And I think the same thing applies. It's, I think the onus is on us, as, especially as realists, uh, to understand that other powers have their interest in mind. And when when that's the case, and we can we can see that and be honest with it, uh, we can deal at the table of the world a little bit more honestly and bluntly. Whether we should use force or where we intervene or how we conduct uh, state affairs, and I'd say that's 
that's challenging because in the history of post-World War II, we've had a, again, a, a sort of an American mindset that has developed a kind of a, a unipolar vision of the world. And that unipolar vision has sometimes, I think, led us down the road towards this uh, sense of American foreign policy, you know, has certain rights and latitude that other nations don't. But in the realist kind of mindset, we recognize you don't always get to uh, you don't always get to, to do that. And uh, so then it becomes very complex when we're trying to explain to the body politic why a certain thing is is untenable. And yet over here it is tenable or why certain uh, crises deserve our investment, but others do not. And so those things become the dangerous complexities that if they're not dialogued well, lead to some very um, difficult places. Sort of on that topic of rhetoric and how we interpret America's role in the world, you spoke at the 2016 Republican National Convention. How would you describe shifts in conservative foreign policy sense? Amazing. Uh, you know, conservatives have always been seen as the hawks, you know, ready to go uh, at a moment's notice. And, and uh, again, kind of that unipolar America's vision uh, ought to be foremost in our mind. And, you know, call it experience or call it cynicism. Uh, I like experience, but some might be very cynical. Uh, experience kind of has proven that whether it's Korea, Vietnam, or you know now Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, you look at Bosnia or other interventions, they deserve more dialogue. They deserve some questions. I, I feel like uh, when I grew up looking at the Vietnam experience, uh, there was a sense that we had learned many lessons from that. And then uh, I think I found myself somewhere around 2006 kind of doing the palm to the forehead like, wow, uh, almost a here we go. I thought we I thought we came through this before, and uh, so I think conservatives a, as a whole have started to take a kind of a more balanced approach. Like, not that we're not hawks. I'm I'm the biggest hawk in a way that there is, uh, but it's about appropriate use. You know, it's it's about when to use uh, military force, and I mean this this is this is a, a key principle in leadership from uh, from being a a, a father, uh, to being a coach on a baseball team, to being, you know, in any form of leadership, uh, there's always the rule, the room for the hard discipline. Let's call it the rod. You know, as the Bible says, spare the rod, spoil the child, right? But you don't go to the rod every time. <laughs> you know, you've got to have other tools in your tool set. And so I think as conservatives, we've started to see that uh, having the first instinct and reaction be deploy our entire forces for, you know, 20 years in land wars in, in, in uh, Asia and Middle East is it, it hasn't benefited the Republic in ways that we can determine. We, we don't see it. And so we're left now uh, skeptical of the use, of the uh, let's call it the, the casual use of power. And I love Winston Churchill. He has a quote, I'll butcher it, but he says something to the effect of war is brutal and nasty and ugly and violent and uh, should never be used. But when it's used, it should be done quickly. It, it, you know, and again, I've butchered the quote, but he's setting you up to say, this is a really bad set of tools, but it's sometimes necessary. Just limit, limit the time it's necessary. And in the United States, you know, we've gotten to this belief system of being able to do endless wars, limit our uh, casualties. So we're doing, you know, technological warfare and you know, ubiquitous tech uh, has made it a lot more easy to kind of kill casually. Uh, you know, we go back to the drone strike on uh, the American citizen. Um, I forget his name. At the Anwar Al-Awlaki. Thank you. Yeah. Um, a casual use of, of the state power to conduct a, uh, a <laughs> an act against a citizen in a foreign country. So it's it's clear that the American public has gotten comfortable with it. The question is, how do we make sure they're not comfortable so that, as the uh, founders might have said, you know, the kings and the tyrants didn't just raise armies at, at, at a whim's notice? It was the whole reason for part of our Constitution, right? The, the old world raised funds and went to war because kings wanted to aggrandize their, their, their land and their power. And the only way to limit that is by giving people the right to vote, <clears throat> participate in their government, ensuring that they have their own ideals in mind. So, so that's why this, this, these conversations are, 
they ought to be uh, some of the most important. Well, that does really uh, tie to some of those AMF, AUMF issues, authorization for use of military force issues that you've been speaking of. You know, I, I remember someone saying to me once, they don't really build statues of members of Congress for voting for a war. And in fact, a lot of them uh, learned seemingly from O2 uh, from authorizing the Iraq war. Uh, to just try to avoid getting involved in these questions, uh, which is is almost the opposite of uh, of what the founders intended. You know, they wanted the war power to very much be centered in the legislature, precisely because it doesn't have the same incentive. It doesn't see the benefit. Uh, from war in the way that the executive does because the executive gets bigger, uh, because the executive gets more leeway, faces fewer questions, the public gets riled up and gets excited about the commander and the leaders and and all that. You know, it's a very uh, it's it's an aggrandizing experience for the executive. Uh, but to to pivot back to. Uh, some of these things you were mentioning about about uh, great power competition and about spending a lot of effort on land power in uh, in the Middle East. There's been a lot of debate going on in the policy community about U.S. force structure as we move away from uh, war on terror, kind of low intensity conflict models, and toward this renewed focus on the great powers, and specifically what role. Uh, SOF and things like security force assistance brigades should be playing in that ecosystem? You know, should we be moving away from these kinds of lighter, smaller forces and toward your high-end platforms, you know, ships, aircraft, uh, things along those lines, and similarly moving away from land power and toward sea power? You've seen a little bit of this with the Force Design 2030 debates in the Marines. What are your thoughts on all this? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Such a fantastic uh, terrain to trek over. I had the privilege of leading the Association of the United States Navy uh, before my current role uh, coming out of the administration. And, you know, having spent four years in the Navy and then uh, the next 18 years in the Army, uh, I my natural bias as a as a soldier, but what you really see and what I saw in in that experience as the director of the Navy Association is how vital our seafaring seagoing trades are, including uh, the military, and our Navy has suffered some uh, let's call it lackadaisical approach to strategic planning. Uh, that has left us gapping in ways that uh, are, are probably very problematic as we talk about great power competition. Uh, having ship uh, ships enough to kind of patrol uh, the world's oceans with some sort of staying ability would really put us, uh, as Congress has determined, at 360 ships roughly 360. Those are war-going vessels or large repair ships and things like that. Uh, we have somewhere on the order of about 290. Um, so we're 60 ships off the mark, or maybe 70 ships off the mark. Uh, in addition to that, our shipbuilding trade has fallen off the charts such that we don't do a lot of shipbuilding here. And when we do, it takes an extraordinary amount of time to, to raise it from keel to deck to, to fitting it out and ready for uh, sea travel. In support of those trades, we've lost a lot of labor and manufacturing that could support that type of industrial ramp up. So now you have a question of uh, a Navy that has less capability to be a presence in the world in places like Indo-Pacific and uh, China or regions that are broad and far. And when they do patrol or when they are in those areas, uh, they have to stress the sailors out. They have to you know, end up with what we call double pump type deployments where you go back to back to back. That stresses maintenance on the ship. Our ships are, are old and legacy. We haven't built new ones. So uh, the first point here is in the realm of state power as it looks at great power competition and recognizing how much trade takes place in the oceans, how much uh, trade is uh, processed through ports of call, ports that are entry ports and debarking, you know, taking cargo that de disembarks from that port and enters the interior. We saw huge problems with that over the last couple of years. Our entire sea industry 
or maritime industry has suffered. Uh, the merchant marines used to be a force that would be called upon in in times of war to augment the military, their civilians that trained to also become a sort of a part of the, the strategic mission. And the merchant marines at this stage haven't been really well nurtured. So our force is lacking there. That puts us in a, a place where we have to build higher end systems in order to catch up with, you know, China, we, I said our ships were at about 290. China somewhere around 360 at this stage. Uh, I don't remember the exact number, but uh, they their ships are not always as good. Uh, but sometimes having more is is better. You know, you know there's there's a there's a quality to quantity all by itself. I think somebody said. Um, so when you look at that, number one. The years we spent in in the land warfare, and for people that are maybe not as steeped in this, the idea is on a ship, you have a mobile portion of military uh, deployment. You can deploy violence through the military via ships quickly and mobily. They're agile. Wherever they go, uh, they bring with them all the assets needed. So they're kind of living communities, and then they can deliver justice at the end of that sort of track. With the, with the army, the army uh, doesn't exist anywhere. It exists in camps and bases throughout the United States, some, sometimes the world. But when we go forward to deploy the army, we have to bring the Air Force. We have to bring logistics. We have to bring Halliburton, you know, KBR, all these systems to support these uh, massive bases that will last for a long time. And the expenditure just to keep the army in play is huge. That's what we did in Iraq. That's what we did in Afghanistan. So the idea is for a national policy, uh, having a great naval force is, is sometimes a little more effective and quicker to fix problems. You you send the seventh fleet somewhere or you send a fleet of uh, ships near a crisis area, and that sends a huge message. On the other hand, to bring forces to bear in a conventional uh, form on the land requires basing permissions, a uh, strategy that requires other states to be involved. It, it, it gets very complicated, uh, whereas the Navy could patrol international waters. So, so back to the smaller question, which is then how do we see the small forces, special operations playing a role in great power competition, places like Indo-Pacific and, and so on? And should we rely less on them and more on high-end platforms? I would say no. Um, I think that oftentimes... Uh, special forces are seen as a magic pill and they can solve anything. And that's that's uh, not true. I think the culture of America has been uh, caught up and enraptured with the idea of SEALs and, and Rangers. It's a fun idea. That's who we are. I mean, George Washington, Paul Bunyan. I mean, we, we live on stories of the Alamo and, and uh, great tales of uh, David and Goliath, right? That's the special operations sort of uh, cultural space, if you will. So that makes sense that Americans are in love with that. So we have to be careful. We can't use that as the tool to fix everything. But as I said before, if, if we connect that tool to the to the great, you know, sort of military deployment use of force and nest it under commanders that are regional or uh, higher order commanders, then we have the most powerful and effective tools, which are small uh, human sensing, uh, well-trained professionals that are seasoned to do let's call it the velvet glove work of the foreign diplomacy before we have to kind of lay in, uh, you know, missiles or, you know, Patriots or drop some sort of air assets in uh, somebody's backyard. We have the ability to get on the ground uh, person to person uh, tribe to, to, to unit or whatever you want to call it and, and really get an understanding of who the people are and what is uh, happening at the ground level. And it's one of the best assets we have in the USG to do that without breaking glass. So frequent deployments for JSOC type teams doing a joint combined exercise for training or similar, they, they help us kind of get a feel for the communities that are local without necessarily uh, being a, a, a blunt tool. But then at the same time, we have to recognize that they they aren't there to be used when the United States uh, has an emergency crisis that they don't want to involve Congress or get the legislature involved. In other words, where we should have dialogue, we should have dialogue. Where we have opportunities to do below the threshold activities, in other words, above the threshold is violence and bombs, below the threshold is 
while this country's looking like it's it's on the edge, it's 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 threading right below emergency time. That that's the place where special operations ought to work. And they ought to be in support again of the grand strategy. And if we don't know that, they'll always be abused. And so if the American uh, voter doesn't hold Congress accountable, Congress isn't going to hold the executive branch accountable. The executive branch is going to continue to, uh, and I don't, I don't mean Biden. I don't mean Trump. I don't mean Obama. I don't mean Bush. I mean, the executive branch, you know, from the outset, we know presidents tend to to rely on powers that they can uh, they can somewhat distance themselves with. So George Washington struggled with this all the way through every president. So this is not a biased or political opinion. This that's just real frank talk. And the more Americans want their special operations to be used well, uh, the more it's going to require some transparency and some some conversations that might be hard. To go a little bit further down this, uh, you, you were talking a little bit about uh, about training. R- reporters like Nick Terse, they've argued that uh, counterterrorism training in Africa has close ties to rapidly worsening civil-military relations. I know you spent some time um, in, in West Africa as well, uh, but he, they're essentially arguing, arguing that it culminates in a series of military coups. Uh, do you agree with his assessment, and what should America do to avoid destabilizing fragile democracies in developing countries? I haven't seen uh, all of Nick's work, um, but I would say, uh, again, some very interesting areas to tread on. When our unconventional forces are used in places side by side with, um, let's call them emerging states or burgeoning type states or states where there's a sense of chaos, Mogadishu, Somalia, um, we'll take that for example. It takes some careful look. And and I, I think a lot of times our, our national security strata is so far disconnected from what's happening on the ground uh, that they're going to get it wrong. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a product of this system. So I know this system. So anybody that's out there that you know has, has grand ideas, uh, I would just challenge them to walk on the ground, walk a mile in the shoes. They can't do that because it, it takes a lot to get there. But I served in, in some of these places. And I can tell you that the strategy was was not as focused as I think America would assume it would be. Um, But as importantly, we weren't as understanding of the uh, sort of the ground environment as I think we like. We have a lot of systems, State Department, CIA, uh, the whole of government approach, and then the military to kind of tell us how the people are thinking, what's happening on the ground. Uh, But for my money, uh, I've seen it firsthand. They don't always work so well. So we have incentives built into the system that tend to kind of lead us into these utopian uh, style visions of what we can do and what we can get done. When a lot of times uh, when we meddle in those places, it it adds a little complexity to the measure. It's, it's not always the wrong thing. Uh, I would just suggest that there are times that our senior strategists, senior policymakers, uh, are working off of two-dimensional sort of paper products, intelligence type things, not human terrain. The human terrain I found was much more different when we were in Mogadishu, uh, for example, and there was a raging war back and forth between the elements. Uh, I happened to be the only American at time in country and reporting for, at least in this part of the country, there were some up north, but um, separate separate area. Um, Reporting for the community, and by the community, I mean the enterprise, JSOC, uh, AFRICOM, um, you know, other intelligence communities and so on and so forth, national security. Uh, it turns out my those reports are different. You know, when sources come in, you know, their, their reports can be a little bit shaded or biased when others come in. And I saw that we were looking at what was happening at the ground, uh, almost like we were observers in a grand battle. But on the ground, it was so much less than that. It was like it was like uh, a hot summer in uh, Detroit or something. Gangs were going up against each other and some would have success. And oftentimes they're just eight hour gun battles. You know, an eight hour gun battle sounds pretty uh, provocative. But in reality, sometimes it's it's just it's just street fighting. And it the, the purpose of it isn't so grand. You just have folks that are dispositioned in some pretty challenged areas and they, they, they scrap with each other. Uh, 
But the big thing that we see happening, the big movement of politics and personalities is, is so much less on the ground. It's just beefing and turf wars and so on and so forth. And many of those countries, in this case, uh, in, in Somalia, just don't have infrastructure enough to set up government to really quell that. And so it's a natural way of living in these chaotic environments. When we get involved and start putting our hands on the on the scale, we can make some changes. But again, as you point out, or Nick perhaps points out, uh, there's oftentimes backlash to that. You know, we, we, we go back to 1958, I think it was 58, 56, when we ousted uh, Mossadegh in Iran and Kermit Roosevelt, you know, related to Teddy, was a CIA station chief there and <clears throat> got, got him out. Uh, installed some people that we were friendly with. And it's 20 years later, we're dealing with the uh, Iran uh, hostage crisis and the revolution in Iran that led to uh, what is the current state of affairs there, the mullahs and so on. So, so there is always blowback, but you can't necessarily be afraid of blowback because <laughs> uh, nobody here can say 50 years from now, we're going to be friends with, you know, such and such or whatever. You've got to be willing to trade sides frequently. And I think a lot of the American people don't always like to hear that, but that's realism. Sometimes Russia's our friend. Uh, we won World War II with them as allies, right? And and allies can be tenuous. Allies should be tenuous. We should never be, you know, completely confident with the folks that we're uh, aligned with. We should always have temporary alliances. That's more of a principled thing. That's my uh, opinion, but it leads to some quality uh, work. And I'd say the same thing for special ops. Down, down on the ground level, we get involved in a lot of murky situations. As long as we're not overly permanent about some of those, uh, we could have a little bit more success, but we ought to be very limited in how, how often we're doing those things that affect the strategic political environment. That's That should not be America's first cause, if you will. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jason Beardsley, for coming on Security Dilemma. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thanks, guys, for a wholesome discussion. Not always easy, but appreciate it and love what you're doing.